Hey, great to have everybody here. Uh, Larry just prayed for strength here, and, and uh, you probably uh, the Ryblin and Vincent families are in recovery mode. Both of us have uh, had uh, young children, children who have left and cleft and have now become one with their others. And uh, uh, I'm sure both families are, are uh, a little bit worn out. We are here, but we are grateful and blessed by what's happened here. Uh, I want to start here in John 18, and if you remember, this particular passage deals with the trials of Jesus before his crucifixion. And uh, eventually he gets to Pontius Pilate, and uh, Pilate says, are you really a king? And Jesus' response is, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And then who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate looked at Jesus and he asked, what is truth ever since? And that question has been plaguing humanity ever since. Uh, It seems a no-brainer. But yet, over 30 years ago, George Barna did a poll and uh, he found that 66%, that's two-thirds of all it believe, quote, that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Different people can define truth in conflicting ways and still be correct, unquote. Between, worse yet, Of that group, the folks between 18 and 25, it was 72%. And that was a long time ago. Uh, More recent Barna polls, uh, sometimes the information held, hard to understand, but at best, those percentages have held, which means that at best, one in three adults believe there's any kind of an absolute truth. And that bad or be... Uh, govern our lives. And so regardless of how long it's been that bad or what it it is right now, the church must wake up, smell the coffee, and understand that whether there is a truth is really... You should have it. It matters. On your sheet there, uh, you, you should have a definition of truth. And Bible believing Christians believe that truth is that which is ultimately, finally, way it absolutely real. And by real, we're talking about reality. The way it is. The way things are. Not just physically, but logically. And for us, spiritually. Um, so therefore, truth is that which is utterly dependable and first question Now... In dealing with the culture today, the first question we've got to ask is, what is somebody else's view of reality? And I'm being serious about that. Sounds like another stupid question. Uh, Barna, again, in 2005, found that 27% of those who consider themselves atheists and agnostics still believe that there has to be some sort of absolute truth or moral code. So, while these people recognize for life the essential requirement of having 
some guide for life. They had no clue as to where it came from. They did not recognize the necessity of a truth giver. Their ultimate standard maker. On the other hand, there are people out there today, and we've talked about this before, but you know, some people are new here. They're, they're called postmodernists. And they believe that we each individually have our own sense of reality and that no one can make a universal truth claim for any for uh, What is true for one postmodernist is not necessarily true for another. Uh, as you can see, if this were the case, it would border on insane conclusions about it. Uh, now, why is this? Why do people come to such diverse conclusions about our reality? Well, there are a lot of reasons, I'm sure. Peer pressure, you know, the media doesn't help. Uh, maybe just mental laziness, uh, desire to be free from moral constraints or intimidation. Uh, maybe we don't want to face that guy with the glasses and the beard up front at, in, in the college class who seems to be, he must be much smarter than me. Uh, and of course, power to assign grades. So that's pretty huge. Uh, but regardless of the reasons, uh, a lot of people have come to these rather strange conclusions. And people, young people who don't want to be outside of what's cool, people who may just be too lazy to care, somehow accept these, some of these crazy ideas. But if we step back in reality, in practice, a person living as a materialist or a humanist or secularist or a consistent lover does not and cannot live consistently with the logical conclusions of their presuppositions. People have to live in reality. I think we can all understand that. Uh, no humanity is believes we cannot change the reality of what is. Because Christianity is consistent with the way things are, with truth, with reality, to deny Christianity in favor of some other system of belief is to stray from the real world. Our, our truth, the truth of Christians, is grounded and anchored in God's own reality and in His truthfulness. Uh, and I've tried to put some of the qualities of truth on your sheet there. I'll just rattle through these. Of course, it's nine place or contradictory. We'll talk about that a little bit later. It's universal. It doesn't depend on any time, place, or circumstances. It's discovered. We don't invent it. Okay? It's descriptive. In other words, it is cohesive with the rest of reality. Uh, inescapable. So, deny it is to affirm it. And it is unchanging. So, when someone says, as they will, that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Everybody's got their own truth. Or that may be true for you, but not for me. What are right and I going to say? Are we going to be polite and nod and essentially agree with them? Or are we going to be prepared with a reason for the faith that's within us? If we can give that's the question. Um, if we can get others to listen, we must be able, we must have the ability to explain to them graciously in ways that they can understand what's at stake. If there is no such thing as absolute truth, 
Why then is it important to tell the truth? What authority demands that we be honest with one another? These are kind of important questions. So, uh, the first major point on your outline here um, deals with an intramural question. Is the truth of Christianity determined by our faith or by reason? Okay. All right. This is something Christians debate. So I want to start with us first. Uh, for a believer, once you become a Christian, that person becomes adopted an adopted child of God and is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And the progression goes from Galatians 3 are all... Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, but in Jesus Christ, you are all children of God through faith. Galatians 4 says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba. We cry, Abba. And in Romans 8, it says, You have received the Spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Okay, so with that, the assurance of salvation comes the assurance of the truths of Christianity. A believer knows Christianity to be true by the self-authenticating witness of the Holy Spirit. But for the unbeliever, he is not indwelt with the Holy Spirit. God has a different mission convict the Holy Spirit in relation to unbelievers. And in John 16, he tells us that is to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Holy Spirit plays in both lives, but is only in the believer, not in the unbeliever. How with Holy Spirit, no one would ever become a Christ follower. However, we cannot conclude from that that we are only to preach faith to those who have objections in Christ. What examples do we have? Boldly tells us that Paul argued, explained, proved, spoke boldly, pleaded, expounded, and testified trying to convince the Jews of the truth of Jesus Christ. If you look at Acts 16, or 17, 19, and 28, you'll find Paul commands just that. Uh, finally, you and I as believers are commanded to be prepared to make a defense. The Greek word is apologia to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, always adding on to that with gentleness and respect in 1 Peter 3. So while a Christian knows the truth by the Holy Spirit, a believer shows the truth of Christianity to a skeptical unbeliever by demonstrating system consistent, coherent, and matches the reality better than any other system of belief. Now, in dealing with people, you know as well as I do, they come in all shapes and stripes and sizes and whatever, and beliefs. Christian. So there is no one cookie-cutter way of addressing somebody with a non-Christian worldview. If you run across a desperate sinner who had a, has a tragedy in their life or whatever, and they notice that you don't get upset when things go wrong with you, you're happy. And they say, tell me what you've got. Maybe and can go straight to the gospel. Okay, uh, the Holy Spirit may be, in fact, convicting that person. And and not too long ago, we heard Dalton tell us about at the Young Life Camp how some 
foul-mouthed teens found themselves crying because Jesus could love even them. That happens, and that's great. But if you engage an atheist, let's say, and let's say this one does believe in absolute truth, just not sure where it comes from, you don't need to, to convince him that there is a truth, you just need to talk about where does that truth come from. But if someone says to you, there is no such thing as truth, and you respond, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, period, you're likely to be met with a shrug. Okay? Or if some gets, those people who say that gays are sinners, uh, they're just Bible-thumping bigots. If your response is, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it, where does the conversation go from there? That's the okay. That's the point. How do we get someone to consider the good news, the gospel? We've talked about before, and we want to emphasize again today. You've got to go back and you ask, and allow Christians to probe how that skeptic came to that conclusion, and allow him to see how his worldview is impossible to live out. Again, we're commanded to give a reason, a defense, an apologia. On your sheet there, I think, the hope that lies within us as believers. So really, on your sheet there, I think there's a blank. This is not a matter of faith or reason. Rather, it is a reasoned faith. You can become a believer on faith alone. But if you want to draw others closer to Christ, you may just need reason to help you to knock down those barriers, knock down those blind spots, those, those things that prevent them from seeing the truth. So I'm now at, at uh, number two here um, on the outlines, just so you'll know. Uh, I want to say that you know, there's, some people have said that science is the handmaid of theology, and that is absolutely true. Because logic and science are the friends of Christianity. But you've got to understand what science is. Uh, every discussion about truth must include the concept of faith. Everybody has faith in something. Religion, oftentimes people will say, you know, science deals with facts and religion with faith. What I want to, I hope to be able to convince you of today is that is what we would call a false dichotomy. In other words, it's like the theory is not true. Uh, you've all heard of theories. That's what we talk about in science, right? Like the theory of evolution. Okay? Uh, if a theory is a theory a proven fact? Okay? No, that would be a contradiction in terms. All right? In fact, one scientific source uh, looked up said this, facts and theories are two different things. In the scientific method, there is a clear distinction between facts, which can be observed and or measured, on the one hand, the fact, theories, which are scientists' explanations and interpretations of the facts. In other words, something is either known as fact by observation and or measurement, or it is, a no, it is not known as a fact. Okay? It's known it can be drawn from evidence, but that does not change something that is not known into an established and known fact. 
this inference is a form of faith. It might be a reasoned faith. But faith of science through theories necessarily involves faith. Okay? Some honest scientists have admitted this. Theoretical physicist and evolutionist John Polkinghorne said, Science does because it is the mathematical intelligibility of the physical world because it is part of science's founding faith that it is so. Another theoretical physicist, Eugene Wigner, said, the enormous usefulness of mathematics in the natural sciences is something bordering on the mysterious. It is an article of faith. Close quote. It helps if we understand at least two basic laws that are essential to the pursuit of truth. One is the law of non-contradiction. In other words, two contradictory statements cannot be true at the same time. So, the statement, Kent is mostly bald, and the statement, Kent has a full head of hair, cannot be true at the same time. Uh, think about this one. Uh, when somebody wants to avoid a conversation about faith, about God, about Christianity, about religion. Don't, have you ever heard somebody say, you know, all religions are true and lead to God? You ever heard that? Okay. What can you say to that? Agree that, what about, did you ever hear this guy named Jesus Christ? Would you agree that he is the centerpiece of a major world religion called Christianity? You know, I think you're going to get yeses to those. Okay. You know, Jesus said, no one comes to God that through me. Now, there's two possibilities. One is that Jesus was right, in which case your statement is blown out of the water. But if Jesus was wrong, then his religion is wrong and your statement is blown out of the water. That statement that all religions are true and all lead to God implodes upon itself. Because for that to be true, all religions would have to, do, to agree, all religions, that whatever they believe means nothing. Because every road leads to God. Okay? So, it, it falls on itself through the, the, the whole concept of being contradictory. It's self-contradictory. Okay? And we've talked about... Um, the other law that we'll spend more time on here is the law of rational inference. Okay? And we've talked about this just previously. Inferences can be drawn from what is known to conclusions. Okay? If a statements are true and arguments are valid supporting those statements, uh, now it is raw conclusions. This is how all of us think about the real world. Uh, now it is impossible to know certain things as fact by observation or measurement. Uh, therefore, we infer from certain evidence. Okay? Now, let's say you get to be in a delivery room. And this is not your wife. Let's say you're a doctor or nurse or whatever. And a baby is born. You can infer that mom and dad procreated this child. Now, they were there, but you were not. Right? You inferred that. Pretty safe assumption, right? But you don't know that from observation or measurement. You have to infer it using reasoning. Okay, in a court of law, certainty by juries 
often do not know the truth with absolute certainty by observation. You know, there might be a video, but videos can be doctored. Okay? Instead, the trier of fact must infer from the evidence what they believe to be, the t- or maybe even... You've probably heard of stories about people who have languished in prisons for years or decades, or maybe even been put to death, and then later DNA evidence will prove they were innocent. Sometimes courts are wrong about very serious matters because they cannot know the truth at all. There's a theory as fact. So when a materialistic scientist considers a theory about origins of the universe or about man, He infers from certain material evidence, the evidence he's open to, scientists who happen comes to a conclusion about what he believes to be true. Uh, When a scientist who happens to be a Christian considers the necessity of a first cause to answer those same questions, she might infer from certain evidence to which she's open what she believes to be true. But both scientists must exercise Faith. That's the point. Just helping a skeptic understand the role of faith in science and all of life is a key to getting to the gospel. Now, if you're a college freshman, and some of you are, and you walk into, I don't know, a biology class, and they start to talk about origins, and you happen to be bold enough to mention you know, creationism, it's fine. A polite professor might say, you know, that's fine for your faith. That's fine. But in this class, we're going to talk about science and fact only. And young people, if you don't understand, you know, the fallacy of that statement, what are you going to do? Oh, you know, I thought my faith was important. But I guess not here. I better listen up because I want a good grade. Trade everybody here. If we don't train, admonish, and encourage our young people to know the reason for their faith, we have failed. That's how important this is. The question is not whether it is science or religion, fact or faith. Rather, in analyzing these things, the question is, what is the best of faith from the evidence that we have? Which, in the final analysis, is a matter of faith. And on your sheet there, I think we've got a question about what standards should we use? I think we should hold ourselves to the highest standard. In a court of law, when you're trying to confer absolute crime, the standard is beyond a reasonable doubt because you can't know for absolute certainty what happened, but it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, if we can remove reasonable doubt from a skeptic's view and present the truth in love, that person may just open in his shoes. Or, if not, at least we can put a pebble in his shoe so that he is less certain about where he stands on an issue that he thinks, or he thought, was a fact. That takes us to our last major point here. Um, in our uh, 
study in the Sunday schools that we're going to deal with cultural issues, we decided during this series we would try to refer to some of those issues as much as we could. Uh, and there's a lot that can be said, and, and I have, um, uh, I, I want to say a lot here, but because of time, I'm not going to be able to say much, uh, but I have included as a separate handout, please don't look at it now, a separate handout on inextricable the sanctity of life and race relations, and those two are inextricably intertwined, Okay. And honestly, I don't want you to be distracted because we're going to talk about another very important issue. And I've done it. I do want you to read it. Obviously, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't want you to read it. But understand that when you read it, I have used direct quotes. And if you're not familiar with this, if you've never been exposed to this before, it will make your blood boil because it all depends on your view of truth. So, uh, the one we are going to talk about today is the, uh, the current issue of same-sex marriage. And this is just as an example. And the new sexuality has been around pretty much forever. Okay? It's referred to in both the Old Testament and the New. History records different types of relationships between same-sex people within different cultures. Uh, but the first reference I could find to a same-sex marriage was that of the Emperor Nero. Okay, this is in the first century A.D. And if you're a history buff, you probably have remembered that Nero was the guy who fiddled while Rome burned. And according to Christian and non-Christian sources, he persecuted the early church greatly. You know, like lighting up his garden. This is, okay, that sort of thing. Um, this is not really a new issue. Okay, nothing new under the sun. Uh, in addition to that, we've got another complicating issue here. Uh, we've all, we, what, we also male and female. We call traditional marriage one husband, one wife, that's a male and a female, just to be clear, uh, has not always been the sole form of relationship within cultures. Heterosexual polygamy, one husband and more than one wife, uh, and has long been practiced in many cultures, including several Old Testament figures. Okay? Uh, as a side note here, um, it is for this reason that I believe, as an attorney, that the next group in line to the United States Supreme Court are the polygamists. Okay? You can anticipate their argument. If marriage cannot be restricted between loving individuals based upon gender, how will the Supreme Court justify restricting it based upon the number of people? Okay? Truth has consequences. Um, I think it's fair to say, if you read the Bible honestly, that lifelong monogamy, one husband, one wife, is the clear teaching of the Bible and God's plan. Uh, I'm not going to go over this in detail. I think you guys understand. Uh, but I, I will say this, that when the scribes and Pharisees confronted Jesus about uh, uh, Moses' allowance for divorce from between a husband and a wife, uh, Jesus' response was, from the beginning it was not so. Our prayer 
it is not divorce or homosexuality or polygamy or even the recent Supreme Court decision, but rather it is how one's foundational truth matters. Same-sex marriage is just the most recent example. And because we happen to now be in an historical distinctship, we're going to include these discussions about same-sex marriage and distinct from that same-sex attraction in some of these upcoming Sunday school uh, sessions. I hope you'll participate if you want to be informed. Now, uh, the seeds of destruction of God's truth in this area started back in the garden with the fall. That's clear. But there are many factors that go into our current paradigm shift related to marriage. For our culture, as with on your handout, you'll see on the sanctity of life and race relationships, as in dark. The Western culture, it all goes back to good old Charlie D, as in Darwin. Okay? Uh, Darwin's worldview excluded God's truth. So he attributed human mating practices to him that are mammalian biology. He, uh, Darwin claimed that our moral faculties, you know, the truth supposedly that some ascribe to a superior being, were really just social instincts rooted in our biology. However, these social instincts and longer than the antisocial instincts like self-preservation and lust. Uh, therefore, Darwin offered no real permanent basis for morality or truth. In his book, and in his book, The Descent of Polygamists in 1871, he declared that the first human beings were, quote, probably polygamous or serially monogamous, in other words, one relationship after another, and that marriage was just a useful arrangement in the struggle for survival. So we boil down Darwin's truth to this. It's clear that a male and a female are necessary to propagate our species. We all got that. It's, it probably helps them survive to have somebody who provides hunting and gathering and one who cares for them. You know, you've got to nurse them and feed them and take care of them until enough of themselves. Uh, and, but if you have enough of the species doing just that uh, and their offspring survive to reproduce, there really is no reason to restrict sexual relations to a man and a woman, a form of sex. And so Darwin concluded that mankind had, quote, no superior form of sexual relations. Now, I want to, notice, I want to ask if you've noticed a, a contradiction in logic here. You ever heard somebody say that homosexuals are born that way? That way can't help it. Obviously, that's a pretty, pretty strong argument that they make. Born that way can't help it. But evolutionary theory says that traits are perpetuated due to natural selection over time, favoring those most likely to survive gay news. So my question is, how could a gay gene survive over the centuries? Think about that. Okay, back on track here. Darwin started with a view of truth. And he wasn't the first one to express these doubts about traditionalism or, or uh, the way that we look at things. But Darwin gave others a scientific basis or justification for that view of truth. And admit that he would not consider the possibility of, of a creator. He was enough of a scientist to have to admit that he stated only a theory, not fact. Therefore, a belief or faith. 
based upon evidence to which he was open to consider. However, from that point on, the religion, faith versus science, fact, false dichotomy took over. And through many social actions and reactions, including some misinterpretations of God's truth, we have to the summer of 2015. You know, society generally reflects a dominant view among many views of truth. And all of us just happened to witness a significant event signaling an historic about the institute of the scale between one dominant view and another in regards to the truth about the institution of marriage. You know, it's been going on for a long time, but we finally saw it flip. In the Roman Empire and others, the dominant view of truth was simply proclaimed by one man, the king or the emperor. At least we've gotten to the point where that dominant view is now proclaimed by five out of nine Supreme Court justices. Now, I ask you, do not faint, please. God who is up, don't grow weary. To paraphrase Francis Schaeffer, he is the God who is still there, as is his truth. Now, that takes us to this matter, which I think we need to consider seriously in this whole matter. The last point here is, why should biblical marriage be important to biblical Christians? Emotional. Let's put aside all the reasoning and, and arguments about the social, emotional, and psychological reasons for marriage. Even though those are helpful in helping people understand the consequences of not following God's plan. Instead, why is biblical marriage substitute? Why should we teach, encourage, and uphold it as God's plan and reject man's substitute even if we have to do so from the jailhouse? as one clerk in Kentucky is now doing. You know, the family described, the family structure described in Scripture is not just a whim mentioned by God. Rather, it is an icon or a symbol of God's purpose for the universe in Christ. The mandate of Genesis 2, to leave a father and a mother and to cleave to as a mystery and become one flesh is described by Paul in, in Ephesians 5 as a mystery that refers to Christ in the church. Paul's purpose here is not to give us tips for a happier marriage. Using or to use Christ in the church as illustrative of human marriage. Rather, that, that would be a bit like using the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as an illustration of how to conduct a proper baptism. Rather, it's the other way around. Uh, the husband-wife union as one visually symbolizes the church-Christ union. A couple vows till death do us part as a lifelong commitment of love and respect which reflects, reflects the eternal insclinity of Christ and His bride whom He protects, provides for, leads disciples and washes clean with the Word of God. And it's only when we step back and get this bigger picture of this mystery of the family that we can understand why it is under spiritual attack today. It's no coincidence that Paul explains this marriage mystery followed immediately about 
parent and child relationships right in the middle of a discussion in Ephesians 4 through 6 about spiritual warfare of the one. After his death and resurrection, Jesus, Jesus tells this story of the woman, or Jesus uh, tells the woman at the tomb, Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father in John 21. This is a house and a multi-family. Through the ages and through the nations, Christ and his bride are fruitful and they multiply. Uh, would you turn to Romans 1 here? Uh, I may not make the time limit on this one, but this is important. Uh, it, it, as you do that, it should come as no surprise that the word picture or hates the family order. Why? Because it pictures Christ, the light that came into the world. And that's why marriage is important. But men need to think about rather than light because their deeds were evil. I want you to think about, as, as we read here in Romans 1, if this sounds familiar. Starting in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been and created. So they are without excuse. They've seen it in creation. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were dark. For images claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, who is blessed and the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. We're going to go on. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged the natural relations for the with passion contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, Maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, father, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Deserved. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Sound familiar? You know, is that not the call of our age? You know, we've paid attention to what's going on in, in, in the news. It is terrifying. The world changes the gift of creative into a goddess and rejects the creative purpose of intimacy. The world declares that the fruit of that intimacy has no value worth 
and then grins at the profit it makes on the sale of that prematurely picked fruit. The world has no need for God created them, male and female, precisely because that's what God did. How did this happen? Paul tells us. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Again, who is blessed forever. Amen. Again, do not despair. Don't give up just because the world has thrown out God's plan for the family. Because He writes the final chapter. Truth is that the darkness does not overcome the light. This fight has been going on since the fall. And in the end, the blood of the cross and the empty tomb declare defeated and humanity redeemed. Lord God, we give praise to You that You know, You know we are weak. You know that we're all sinners. Lord, You know that we fail. Lord, and the sin of others is the same as ours. But yet, you have given us a truth to follow. Lord, would that we would all, young and old, understand the necessity of taking that truth in day by day and using it in our lives to have a true, to live you of life. Using that truth to live genuine lives of love and caring about others to draw them to you. Father, thank we would be able to truth. Thank you for your love. We pray, Lord, that we would be able to exhibit both. We ask all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.